Marge was praying over uh, her heart racing over these last couple of weeks due to a bad medication, and she was going to bed with, what, 100 beats per minute or something? Could not, 120, could not fall asleep, and the Lord answered her prayer, and we found out what the problem was, and Marge, I'm glad to have you here with us today. Thank you so much for reading. But you hear what Paul is saying, and you heard the prophecy in Isaiah. The Gentiles will also be co-heirs with Christ. And it's such good news because none of us are in the line of Israel in this room. Unless you have a secret that I don't know about, none of you are in the line of David. If, unless you traced your family tree all the way back to him. We are the Gentiles who have heard the good news and are now co-heirs with Christ as the church. Amen? And I love that, that language that Paul uses. He says, previous generations didn't know this. Paul isn't talking about Isaiah because Isaiah knew it. He's talking about generations that were still alive that denied that reality, right? It's only their truth. It's only their salvation. But Paul is saying this is salvation for the world. Hallelujah. Salvation for the world. And the Magi are evidence of the world hearing the good news and the light of God in the world. If you take your Bibles out, we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 2. Last week, as I said, we looked at the Holy Family's perspective of, of the Magi coming. And today we're going to hear the Magi's perspective as they come to worship the newborn king. We're going to look at verses 1 through 12 in the Gospel of Matthew. Listen to these words of the Gospel. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the territory of Judea, during the rule of King Herod, Magi came from the east to Jerusalem. They asked, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We've seen his star in the east, and we've come to honor him. When King Herod heard this, he was troubled, and everyone in Jerusalem was troubled with him. He gathered all the chief priests and the legal experts and asked them where the Christ, the Messiah, was to be born. They said, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what the prophet wrote, You, Bethlehem, land of Judea, by no means are least among the rulers of Judea, because from you will come one who governs who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the Magi and found out from them the last time they had seen the star first appear. He sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search carefully for the child. When you found him, report to me so that I too may go and honor him. Mm -hmm. When they heard the king, they went and looked the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother. Falling to their knees, they honored him. And the Greek word there is homage, worship. They worshiped Jesus. They then opened their treasure chest and presented him with the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Because they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they went back to their own country by another route. The written word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
As I was pondering this text, I, I have been looking forward to this text since the beginning of Advent because the, the Magi is just so full of mystery. This text is so full of, of uh, intrigue and, and how the Magi first even came to understand where the baby would be born and come into Bethlehem. And as I've been pondering this text, my mind goes to what is the relationship between the light and the dark? What is the relationship when, when darkness comes over our lives? How are we supposed to look for the light? Because what we celebrate at Christmas is the light of the world has come. And his name is Jesus. <laughs> the light of God has come into all the world. Behold, the darkness was, behold, the world was walking in a great darkness, but a light has dawned. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. And so this relationship between the light and the dark has settled in my heart as I ponder what was happening here with the Magi. As you know, I'm a history nerd, and you just have to put up with a little bit of that in every sermon. I'm sorry. We'll get over it quickly. But the Magi, good. Thank you, Sister Corey. I appreciate that. The, the Magi, who we typically call wise men, we always, I always put up the nativity and the wise men are there, right? Well, according to Matthew, they come at about the time when Jesus is in his terrible twos. He's a toddler at this time. In the nativity, they followed the star to the manger, but the star actually led them first to Jerusalem. They said, if a king's coming, where are they going to first go? The palace, Right? And they show up to the palace and they don't see a newborn king. They see old Herod sitting on the throne and they say, this makes no frankincense. <laughs> but of course, where are you going to look for a king? You're going to look for a king in a palace. You're not going to look for a king in the backwaters of Bethlehem. Which Bethlehem in that day was comparable to the to the just the the other side of the tracks, those sorts of towns. That's how Bethlehem was seen. And so, of course, the Magi are going to go to the palace. They're going to ask Herod. They're going to ask everyone they can to get directions to where this newborn king was. Now, the question we ask is, how did they get there in the first place? They were looking towards the heavens. They were looking towards the stars. The Greek word for magi is Zoroastrian priest. They are ones who are astrological experts. So they understand the movements of the heavens. They understand the movements of the stars, and they ascribe particular meanings to them. And in the ancient Sanskrit of Zoroastrianism, which predates Islam, there is a prophet that was foretold to come of a virgin birth in Zoroastrianism. And this is fascinating to me. He is predicted to have come through a virgin birth, and he starts his ministry around 30 years old. And the dominant narrative of his ministry was, Behold, there is someone coming who is greater than I. Watch the heavens. Watch the heavens. He didn't ask to be worshipped. He was saying, Behold, there is one coming that is greater than I. Almost similar to John the Baptist's message. And you look at the ancient Sanskrits of Buddhism, and Buddha said pretty much the same thing. Don't worship me. There is one who is coming that is greater than I. Amen? God consistently blows away our boundaries. God is not afraid of the dark. 
So even though they were looking towards the heavens to get their meaning, they were acquainted with the darkness to such an extent that they were waiting for the light to come. And when the light dawned, they didn't question it. They said, this is something that's happening. And God met them where they were at because they were looking towards the heavens. God said, I will move in the heavens and bring these people from the other side of the world to come and worship the Son of God. Wow. Wow. God meets people exactly where they're at. You notice that God doesn't come in and say, you need to be Jewish first. You need to read the whole Torah, have it memorized before you get to, the, to where the Christ child is so that you can understand the prophecies. No, he met them where they're at because God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. Amen. So God used the stars, his creation, to bring about all the world to come and worship the Son of God. He met them with love, the light of love, and called them to the feet of Jesus. So it begs the question then, what can we learn from the Magi? What wisdom can we learn from these we've called wise men in the scriptures? Well, one of the things I think is that we, in, in American Christianity, we get really preoccupied with light. We really like light, right? Light is, is warm. Light is predictable. Light is comfortable. And it's more certain when we have light in our lives, right? And you can go to churches all across the, the nation, and I'm sure it's even invaded my sermons as well, because as a pastor, I'm tempted to give good news, my good news, <laughs> and not so often the good news of Scripture that can be hard to hear at times, but brings about the goodness of God. Amen? And so sometimes when we get so preoccupied with the light, we only look at our faith that brings about good things. Our kind of cultural narrative is the pursuit of, you don't know it very well, that's great, the pursuit of happiness, right? And so sometimes that hijacks our faith, that our faith needs to constantly produce happiness, that our faith needs to constantly produce light. It needs to be something that helps me gain status, gain wealth, gain prestige, get, gain social understanding, gain success in the world. We sometimes still look at this call to surrender as an avenue to success. When the success that Jesus calls us to is picking up our cross and a wash basin not the success of the world, but the success of the kingdom. Are you tracking with me this morning? And so when we look towards a gospel that is just one half, the, the, the light, we're misunderstanding how God may call us to react when darkness comes. Because darkness is going to come either way, right? When you're a Christian, does everything, is, is your whole life good? Is are you totally comfortable? No, there's darkness and trials and tests that come. And, and it's not that God is having us escape and run away from the darkness. God wants a people that's prepared to respond to the darkness in the name of Jesus Christ. And so how are we called to not run away from the darkness? How are we called to shape our faith that's not so preoccupied with the day that we don't know what to do when the night comes? <laughs> How are we called to respond to the darkness? Well, I, I love how the, the, the Magi were 
were so fixed on the heavens that they responded with joy. The, the scriptures say when they saw the star in the heavens, they responded with joy. Now imagine someone, we don't know how much they knew about Israel. We don't know how much they knew about their faith, their religion. They just saw the star and were filled with joy, right? And the humility, to me, that is such a bold step of humility to walk inside a shack in Bethlehem, a young mother with a little toddler, and say, this must be the king. Having no background of Hebrew understanding or the prophecies to be fulfilled, they just knew it was the king of the world. (laughs) Isn't that incredible? And to have that humility to lay all aside. So they're not just laying treasures at Jesus' feet. They're laying down all their preconceived notions of what a king should look like and act like. They're laying aside all these years of prophecy in their own religion to say this is the one true king of the world. This is the one the prophets in our faith were even talking about. This is Jesus, the Son of God. Wow. Such humility to lay all of their preconceived notions, everything, surrender it all at the feet, not of grown adult Jesus, but of toddler Little tiny king, Jesus, who would be the salvation for the world. That to me is just, it's such a testament of humility. And they searched and traveled in the darkness to find this light of the world. And they found Jesus because they were looking for him. And I think sometimes that's still a lesson that we older Christians need to relearn. Are we still looking for Jesus in everything? Not just the light, but also when darkness comes, when trials come, when pain hits our life. Are we still looking for Jesus, the light of the world? Even if it's a small, tiny speck in the sky, are we still looking for the light of Jesus to to help us to respond to the darkness in his name? Are we still looking? So I, I brought some things of... Maybe, maybe one of these will resonate with you. Maybe all five will resonate with you. But I brought some points that I felt like in reflecting and reading some commentaries that would be really helpful for me to integrate into my faith journey and how I respond to when dark days come. Because dark days will come. The difference will be, are we going to be ready for them or not? So what do we do in the dark? What do we do when we find ourselves in the dark? I think the first is to take time to let our eyes adjust. (laughs) We need to take time in our spiritual journey to let our eyes adjust to this reality that may be painful, that may be grieving, that may be unexpected and scary. Rather than turning and run the other direction, we need to take time to let our eyes adjust to see if it can settle in on even the smallest glimmer of Jesus so that we can walk boldly into places that Jesus is calling us to rather than running the other direction to avoid the darkness, right? We need to let our eyes adjust because the Savior might be asking for our hand to lead us through this place to be on the other side of something greater that we could have never imagined before. God's not afraid of the dark, and he's calling a people that isn't afraid to go in the dark and follow him, even if that's where he's calling us. You know that the Savior went to the deepest depths, darkest depths of death on our behalf. 
God's not afraid of the dark. Imagine a people who are so unafraid of the dark that the gates of hell can't even withstand against us. You know that that scripture passage is oftentimes misinterpreted? We think of gates as in as the, they're advancing. Gates don't advance. They just stay still, right? Guess who's advancing? The church, the people of God. The gates of hell can't withstand against an advancing people who are so unafraid of the darkness that we would follow our Savior into the gates of hell to save those who have been claimed by the devil. That's power. We are a people who are so boldly shaped by the light that we can even go into the darkness where our Lord first went on our behalf to save us and give us eternal life. So be careful to let your eyes adjust because we may miss the slight glimmer of the Savior if we turn and run too quickly. Lean into uncertainty. The Magi, as I just said, had so much uncertainty of what would come. There's a star in the sky. I see stars all the time. How can I even tell which one's the right star? And yet they followed in the darkness because you have to travel by night. And we all know night is the most happy time to travel. There's nothing ever scary about traveling in the night, especially when you only have camels. And there's robbers around every turn, and there's people waiting for you in an unexpected territory. They are in a caravan on camels traveling by night with just the light of a star, and then they stop during the day. Sometimes when darkness comes, I think we look for certainty so much. I know that I do. So oftentimes my best points are being preached to me, okay? So this is a, is a part of the sermon for me that when uncertainty comes, rather than get anxious, rather than get worried and run the other direction, lean into what I feel as uncertainty to find the firmness of God who is there. What I feel like is uncertain times, maybe God is there in God's strength. <laughs> because in my weakness, perhaps I can look for how God is being strong in that moment. Where I only see darkness, maybe God is pulling me to light. So lean into those moments of uncertainty to find the certain true Savior of our hearts, even in the midst of darkness. What else do we do in the dark? Show up anyway. Show up anyway. Even in uncertainty, even if our eyes aren't adjusting, we still show up in worship of the king. Amen? And, and the, the, the Magi understand something that we often take for granted in our culture. Oftentimes our faith is really cerebral. I have to have things figured out before I take steps of faith, right? It, I, my mind needs to get there. The, I hold on to those scriptures of, behold, I renew your mind, right? You shall be saved by the renewing of your mind, and then I use that to justify my mental gymnastics, right? I was like, oh, so it's okay. I can just spend all my time thinking about these things and researching things, and that's really where I'll find my salvation. No. The reality is that we are saved by soul, mind, body, and spirit. All of those things need to show up fully and completely at the feet of Jesus. Which is why we gather every Sunday, quite frankly. Because our whole bodies are engaged in this pursuit of salvation in the world. 
that our whole lives, our habits, our minds is shaped by the reality that Jesus is king. And so show up anyways, even in times of darkness, even in times of uncertainty. Sometimes it is the thing that we need the most to be reminded that Jesus is king and there are people walking with you to find the light. I think that might be the next, the next thing. Oh, no. Jesus is always there even in ways we don't expect. I don't think that the Magi, they understood that Jesus was the newborn king of the Jews, but I'm not sure if they knew that he was going to be so young, right? A two-year-old. Jesus came as a peasant. He wasn't born in the palace. Jesus came as, as, as someone who was fleeing from persecution. He wasn't one that had power over a whole horde of people like King Herod. Jesus came in very low estate to save the world. And yet the Magi still worshipped him. Wasn't a, a king in high power. And he wasn't what they expected even in their own religion. And yet they bowed down and worshipped Jesus. So sometimes when situations are not what you expect, sometimes when Jesus shows up in unexpected ways, are we open to Jesus moving in unexpected ways? And I think that calls for the humility that we see with the Magi, that even though it was a star in the heavens, they had to travel by night, and it was unpredictable, there was uncertainty, and it was this little baby that showed up, they bowed down and worshipped anyway. <laughs> because their focus of reality was dependent on how God would shape it for them, not having God come along and shape the reality they wanted, right? So our expectations even need to be surrendered and laid at the feet of Jesus so that Jesus can rule over even our expectations. How are we looking for Jesus to move even in ways that we don't expect? And one of the most powerful things about the Magi is that we're on this journey together, right? They didn't do it one-on-one. -on -one. They didn't go and visit Jesus by themselves. We count three because how many gifts were there, right? There's three in the gospel, but we don't have a count of how many magi there were. Magi would actually travel in caravans of, of hundreds at times, and both male and female priests were a part of the Zoroastrian religion. And so we may have wise men and wise women showing up to bow down at the feet of Jesus and lay down, and they said treasure chests, Oftentimes, I think, because of the nativity, you see those nativity scenes, it's this little tiny thing of frankincense and this little tiny thing of myrrh and maybe some gold coins, but they opened treasure chests for Jesus. Didn't bring diapers, I don't think. But they had treasure chests of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This holy family had never seen gifts brought like that to their feet. And it was from people they didn't even know their names because of the power of God. But we are traveling, even in dark days, we are traveling together as the church. One of the most important things you can do for a brother and sister in Christ when they are in darkness is to sit with them there. That's what we learn from the book of Job. Almost all of his friends kept trying to poke him and move him out of despair. And even his wife was super encouraging and said, just curse God and die. Get it over with, right? But the call of the church is to sit with each other even in the darkest of times until the light dawns. We are traveling together in this journey to find Christ the King.
the last one is um, we need to remind each other that uh, of who we are and where we are going. When we're in the darkness, some of the most important things we can do is remind each other who we are and where are we going. Who are we? Disciples of Jesus. Where are we going? The redemption of all things. That's what we're hoping for. Who are we? We're the disciples of Jesus Christ. Where are we going? The redemption of all things. Now, if those two things are the goal, how do we handle unexpected things? Well, does this unexpected thing disrupt either of those two things? No. Maybe this is just the unexpected way that God's going to bring the redemption of all things. Are we still discipling each other? Yes. <laughs> is, are, is there an unexpected way in front of us? Yes. But is God maybe going to renew through us? Yes. Because if we don't make those things the goal of the church, then we can get locked into really superficial things and make those really big things, right? I've had friends in ministry who have left the church over building projects. Who are we? People who build buildings? We're disciples of Christ. Where are we going? Newfangled building? No, we're seeking the redemption of all things, which may include that, right? But you see where if the priorities are not on who are we and where are we going, we can get preoccupied with little things. I, had, I grew up on understanding, like, in a different tradition. I grew up in a charismatic tradition. And there was fights over whether or not to have drums in music. And then there was a fight over hymns and choruses, Right? People like splitting the church over what kind of music genre we sing to worship Jesus. Who are we? We're a hymn singing people. No, we like choruses. Okay, I guess we'll start our own denominations. I've had people get upset and leave the church. Not here. Had friends who had their people in their church leave over the color of their carpet. Charles... Dear sweet Charles would say, those are high-class worries. If those are your worries, you've got to have a priority adjustment. Because so often we get caught up in the ways things have always been that we get caught up in doing those things over and over and over again that we don't even stop to ask, who are we? We're disciples of Christ. Where are we going? The redemption of all things. Does this thing that we keep doing over and over and over again redeem the world? Does it help us to be better disciples? Because let me tell you, the culture around us is rapidly changing. Amen? Our message of the gospel doesn't change, but we are a people that are called to serve. Amen? And so when we are a people who are called to serve, we're called to assess what the needs are. And the needs are different every single generation. And so if we are a people to respond to those needs, our message of the gospel doesn't change, but our mode may look different. So are we willing to be versatile in the faith that when the Holy Spirit moves, we say, we really like this thing, but we like being the disciples more. We really, really like this thing over here, and we love the ways that we've been doing that, but we love resurrection more. And sometimes we got to let things die so that resurrection may come. Amen? And that's the humility that I see in the Magi. Folks, 
They had thousands of years of religion and theology, and they showed up at the feet of Jesus that wasn't even foretold, just at the whim of a prophet that said, there is someone greater who's coming. And then they followed a star, and they found the Son of God. That's the power of the gospel that we have been, been given throughout the centuries. It's something that we can't take for granted. Who are we? Disciples of Christ. Where are we going? The redemption and salvation of all things in the world. And if the church misses that identity, then we become a social club. <laughs> if we miss that identity, we become a place where we come just to get our spiritual egos built up, and then we leave the rest of the week. We are called to be disciples to see transformation in the streets or wherever we are. We want to see heaven come as in Boise as it is in heaven. Amen? So in 2020, the call of Euclid may look and feel a little different or a lot different. Who knows? (laughs) But we are a people that even when dark, uncertain times come, our focus is to be Christ's disciples and pursue the redemption of all things. Are you with me? We're in this caravan pursuing the light of Christ together. I'm going to pray over the sacrament. Epiphany reminds us that the light comes into the world through Jesus, but we have to look for it. (laughs) We have to look for it together. We can't stay put in the darkness. We have to keep pursuing Jesus. Throughout this next season of Epiphany, we're going to be looking over in Scripture of how the light of the world has come and brought insight, brought revelation, brought renewed understanding of who we are because of Jesus Christ. Um, And it all starts at the table. Every single person is invited to the table to receive the salvation of Jesus Christ. And it's not something that's magical that if you dip this bread in this cup, that it becomes the body of Christ. We are called to take this as a reminder that we are the body of Christ. His blood was poured out for us as as symbolized in this cup of the new covenant, and our blood and our lives are to be poured out for the world as well. When we come and are nourished by the bread and the cup, we ask that we would be nourishment to the world as Jesus has nourished us. Amen? Let me pray over this sacrament. Pastor Stacy's going to come and serve with me. Lord God, I pray so much that you bless this time together as we come to the table. Help us to understand that this table is the measuring stick of how we are to operate with tables throughout the rest of our week, at the lunch table, at the tables of our work, at our desks, Lord God, wherever we encounter people, I pray that it is shaped and formed by the love that was poured out by you on the cross. I pray that as we come and partake of your body and your shed blood, that we remember it was done on the night that you were betrayed and you still shared this love, this covenant with those who would betray and deny you. Lord God, give us the strength to do the same. Those that we don't agree with, those who believe in different ways, those who look at life different, who lived life differently, may we start and finish with the love that you have poured out on our lives. Even those who have denied and forsaken us, Lord God, may we pursue them the way Jesus pursued Peter and Judas and others that had denied him, Lord God. May we respond in love. We ask that you'd bless this sacrament as we come and partake of it. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen.